Well, good morning. I want to encourage you, if as you were watching Addison and Andrew's baptism, if you were thinking to yourself, you know what, I need to take my next step with Jesus, whether that's baptism or something else, we would love to talk with you after the service. Um, myself, Warren, some of our elders, just come talk to one of us, and we would love to talk with you about what that next step is. I grew up in a Christian home, which meant that my parents wanted to pray with us pretty much every single night. And so I had two other siblings, an older brother whose name is James. He was two and a half years older than me, and we shared a room until I went to college. And then I had a younger sister. Her name is Sarah, and she's about seven years younger than me. And my parents, they wanted to pray with each of us every single night. And we prayed the exact same prayer every single night from birth all the way through 18 years of age. And so our prayers always went like this. I love you. I love you too. Sleep well, sleep well, God bless you, God bless you, help me, dear God, to bring love, joy, and happiness to everyone, amen. And so we would pray that prayer every single night, and I'm so thankful that my parents ingrained in us this desire to pray at night, this routine, this rhythm to pray at night. But from an early age, I knew that prayer had to be more than just saying those words. And so as I grew in my relationship with Jesus, I was hoping to have someone who would teach me how to pray, but I didn't know who to ask. And so who did I turn to? Well, I turned to my older brother. Now, during the day when you would expect to turn to your older brother, no, I turned to my older brother, being the nagging little brother that I was, when he was asleep. So on multiple different occasions, uh, late at night, I would go, James! James! James, are you awake? I am now. James, how do you pray? And there'd be silence for a little bit. Then he'd say, I don't know. I just kind of talk to God. How do you pray? And I'd be silent for just a little bit, and I'd say, I don't know. I just kind of talk to God. And what I wish I would have known then is what I know now is that we actually are given a helpful framework, a pattern of prayer, not from some spiritual guru or some best-selling author. We actually get this pattern of prayer from Jesus himself. And many of you probably know the prayer. It's the Lord's Prayer. And so today, as we are in week 20 of our Core 52 study, we are going to focus on the Lord's Prayer. Now, this, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is probably a prayer that Jesus taught his disciples on many different occasions. In fact, we have it in two different places in the Gospels. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time today in Matthew chapter 6, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. But we also hear Jesus teach about this prayer in Luke chapter 11. And so I want to read you uh, the context of Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, One day Jesus was praying... In a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. I wanted to show you this for two reasons. Number one, we are shown here that Jesus had a constant rhythm of prayer. Constantly throughout the Gospels, Jesus was getting away from his disciples, getting away from the crowds to be by himself to pray. Sometimes all through the night, sometimes early in the morning, Jesus modeled for us a life of prayer. 
But secondly, what this verse shows us and what I want to emphasize today is that this is the only place where the disciples ever ask Jesus to teach them to do anything. 58 times throughout the Gospels, the, dis- the word teach is used. But this is the only place where the disciples ask Jesus to teach them to do something. They don't ask Jesus to teach them how to exercise demons. They don't ask Jesus to teach them how to do the miraculous, how to multiply the loaves and the fish, how to heal a leper or give sight to the blind. No, the only thing they ask Jesus to teach them to do is to pray. And this is not just a prayer that Jesus gave to his disciples then. It's also a prayer that he gives to us today. Do you want to pray better? Do you want to pray more? Do you want to follow the model that Jesus has given us? Then we pray using the Lord's Prayer as our guide. So let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 7. In Matthew chapter 6, we are smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which Warren uh, started preaching on a couple weeks ago. But last week, he started talking to us about how this sermon is all about having a deeper righteousness, how to live a God-centered life. And I think that we are smack dab in the middle that we are taught about prayer Because if we truly want to be people whose lives are rooted down deep in God, our our lives are solely dependent on God, then we need a vibrant prayer life. And so Jesus here in Matthew 6, he teaches us how to pray. And so we'll begin in verse 7. It says, And when you do pray, do not keep on babbling on like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many Words In the ancient world, there are all these different gods, and so the people, they would pray and pray and pray and try to get the attention of these different gods. But Jesus says, hey, don't pray like those people. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. And then He leads us straight into the Lord's Prayer. And what I love is uh, these verses um, with Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase. Here's how he says these verses. He says, the world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy. Uh, you're full, they're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God. Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father that you're dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need with a God like this loving you. You can pray very simply. I love that last sentence. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. And I think that's what this whole Sermon on the Mount is about. I heard this sentence from J.K. Jones. He's a professor at Lincoln Christian University. I heard it about three years ago, but I've been wrestling with it ever since I heard it. He preached a sermon on these verses, and here's what he said this whole sermon is about. To pray simply and to simply pray. Jesus invites us here to pray simply and to simply pray. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we pray simply? But before we get there, I want to offer two caveats. The first is this, is that the Lord's Prayer, these words are not magical words. These are God's words given to us and they are powerful words, but they're not magical words. 
But what these words do do is they invite us into a deeper prayer life. Throughout the centuries, the last 2,000 years, Christians have been using these words to go deeper in their prayer life. Martin Luther in the 1500s, he's the man who helped start the Reformation. He said that every Christian should meditate on these verses for a minute or two before they begin to read their Bibles. Why? Because it helps align our hearts with God. Dallas Willard, he was a 20th century philosopher whose whole life's work was built on spiritual formation. How can we become more like Christ? And so every morning what he would do is he would either pray Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, or he would pray the Lord's prayer before he did anything else. And over the last couple of years, I've, I've tried to do that. Before I do anything else, before I pick up my phone, before I get my coffee in me to help me think straight, I meditate on these verses because they help align my heart to what God wants. They invite me to go deeper in my prayer life, and it doesn't take very long. So that's caveat number one. Caveat number two is that my goal for this sermon is for you to not remember my sermon. My goal is for you to pray using the Lord's Prayer as your guide. I could care less if you forgot everything else I said today, but if you came out of this sanctuary and you went home and you prayed using the Lord's Prayer as your guide, I'd be ecstatic. Because the truth is, when it comes to prayer, prayer is kind of like cooking. You don't learn how to cook by watching Food Network. If so, I'd already be like Gordon Ramsay at this point because I used to love watching Food Network. No, you learn how to pray, just like you do cooking, By doing it, we learn how to pray by praying. And so my goal is for us, all of us, to be a people who pray simply and simply pray using the Lord's Prayer as our guide. So how do we pray simply? Well, the Lord's Prayer has seven different petitions or seven different requests in it, but I think there are three main movements, and all of them begin with A. The first is address. The second is align, and the third is ask. First, we address our God. Secondly, we align our hearts. And third, we ask for our needs. First, we begin by addressing God. And Jesus, in verse uh, 9, he says to us, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. I don't know if there's more important words than those four words in the sermon right here. Our Father in heaven. These words remind us who we are praying to. I'm going to tell you something that um, you might not like it. And so if you're going to throw a stone, I'm just going to hide right under this communion table. So hopefully you don't have very good aim. But prayer is not powerful. Prayer by itself is not powerful. But who you pray to matters. A lot of people pray, and a lot of people pray to all these different gods, but who you pray to matters because if you are praying to a powerful God, then your prayers will be powerful. And we find by the words of Jesus, our Father in heaven, we know that we are praying to a powerful personal God. We're praying to a powerful God. He's described multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount as our Father in heaven. Our God is in heaven. 
which does not mean that he's up there somewhere distant from us. No, that means that he is up there ruling as our king. He is holy and perfect and greater than us in every single way. We have a powerful God. And since we have a powerful God, our prayers are powerful. But like I said, we do not have a distant God. We have a powerful, personal God who is described as our Father. In our Core 52 book, Mark Moore, uh, in, in the essay for this week, he says this. He says, When we recognize that our God in heaven is our loving Father, it transforms our conversation. When we recognize that our God in heaven is our loving Father, it transforms our conversation. Constantly throughout the Gospels, Jesus is praying to God as his Father. There's a special intimacy here between God the Father and God the Son. And what's so amazing about the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is that though we were once sinners, though we were once enemies of God, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, we now have that same intimacy with God the Father. He is now our Father, and we are now a part of a big family full of different believers from all over the world. We have a personal Father. But I know for some of you, the idea that God is your father is not a good image. Maybe you had an earthly father, and when you think about God as a father, bad memories come to your mind. And I'll never know what that's like, and my heart breaks for you. But can I just ask you to please let the picture of God in the Bible Be what you understand God to be. Don't implant your memories on God as your Father. Allow our Father and the picture that we are given throughout the Sermon on the Mount and throughout all of Scripture to be who God is to you. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we hear that we have a personal Father who sees us in the midst of our sin, and yet He still values us. We have a Father who not only knows what we need, He gives us what we need at exactly the right time. We have a Father who showers us with generosity and forgiveness and love, not because of anything that we have done, but because it's who He is. We have a personal, powerful Father. I can't help but think about Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is maybe the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. I want to encourage you to go home and read it. But in that chapter, the Apostle Paul is meditating on The fact that there is now no condemnation, there's no judgment, there's no punishment for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And he begins to talk about how God is our Father. And then he says this in Romans 8, verse 31 and 32. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We have a powerful, personal Father. And so this is who we pray to. This is what makes our prayers powerful. So the first movement of the prayer is that we address our God. But then secondly, we align our hearts to God's desires. We align our hearts to God's desires. The prayer continues, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Before we begin to ask God to meet our needs, we align our hearts with what He wants. We pray for God's name to be hallowed, which is just a fancy way of saying holy and honored. We pray for His kingdom to come. We pray for His will to be done. And we willingly take ourselves off the throne of our hearts because we recognize that Jesus truly is the King of the world. Tim Keller, in the recommended book of the week in your Core 52 book, it's called Prayer, and over the last semester I've been reading this with a mentor of mine and with Warren as well. We've been taking a chapter a week, and it has been one of the most beneficial things that I have done for my prayer life. So I want to recommend that highly, highly, and if you want to read it and talk about it, I will gladly talk about that book with you. But in that book, he says this, he says, The beginning of prayer... Is all about God. We are not to let our own needs and issues dominate prayer. Rather, we are to give pride of place to praising and honoring Him, to yearning to see His greatness and to see it acknowledged everywhere, and to aspiring to full love and obedience. And then I love this last sentence. He says, Adoration and thanksgiving, God centeredness, comes first because it heals the heart of its self centeredness. Adoration and thanksgiving, God-centeredness, comes first because it heals the heart of its self-centeredness. And this is so important for us because as Christians, it's so easy for us to begin our Christian life with one of these. I love these things, man. Uh, And we're like pointing it up to God and saying, God, you're number one in my life. God, I want what you want. God, I want to live my life for you. God, I will do whatever you call me to do. But eventually, over time, we get distracted. We get distracted by the world. We get, we get distracted by Satan. And this can come in so many ways. It can be a, a social media post where you see a friend, they're on this really expensive vacation, and you know you could never afford that because you tithe and you're generous with your money. Or maybe you at, you're at work and you hear the conversation. They're gossiping. And you've been trying for so long not to gossip. You're trying to let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but you're, you just feel alone. You want to be a part of that conversation, and so you begin to gossip with them. And eventually, over time, this number one living for God ends up pointing right back at me. Rather than God being the king of my universe, I become the king of my universe. And so what this prayer does is this prayer helps align our hearts back to what God wants. We need this prayer daily so that we would pray that not our kingdom would come, but that God's kingdom would come. A kingdom that's built on truth and justice and compassion and mercy and reconciliation and forgiveness. These are hard things. And so it's so easy to get distracted and live for ourselves. But this prayer helps align our hearts with what God wants. And we see that this prayer is actually modeled for us in the life of Jesus. Jesus, in one of the last nights of Jesus' life, he is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he knows what awaits him. He's going to be betrayed by his best friend. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be tortured. And he's going to hang on the cross with the weight of the world's sins upon his shoulders. And he knows that it's going to be painful And in the garden, it's as if Jesus doesn't know for just a moment whether or not he really wants to go through with it. 
But two different times, Jesus prays this prayer. We hear about it in Matthew chapter 26, verse 42. This is the second time. It says, He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Jesus prayed this prayer because it helped align his heart with God's mission. And if Jesus needed to pray it, we need to pray it. And we need to pray it daily. And so we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then the last movement of the prayer is that we ask. We ask for our needs. The last four petitions or requests of the Lord's Prayer all are focused on our basic needs. Matthew chapter 6 verses 11 through 13, they say this, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Do you hear the request there? To give us our daily bread, to forgive us, to lead us, to deliver and rescue us. Jesus shows us here that we do not need to be shy about asking him to meet our needs. We ask for Jesus to give us our daily bread. And when he does, we are full of gratitude. And once he does, we pray for those around us. And if we see people who don't have daily bread, then we extend that bread to them also. We ask for forgiveness because we know that we have a, a, a payment to God that we could never repay. We have sinned against a holy and perfect God, and we continue to sin against a holy and perfect God. And yet, because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, we can experience forgiveness. But not only for us, but also for the people that we need to forgive too. Right after this prayer, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus connects our forgiveness with the forgiveness that we show to others. Here's what he says. He says, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So I just want to take a brief pause real quick and ask you, is there someone you need to forgive? Is there someone you need to reconcile with? Because in some way, our forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus lavishes on us, is connected with whether or not we will forgive others. And this is a hard thing. So not only do we, in our Lord's Prayer, ask Jesus to forgive us, we ask Him to empower us to begin forgiving others as well. And then we pray that He would lead us not into temptation, but deliver us or rescue us from evil. We know that we will go our own way and it will be a wrong path. And so we ask that God would lead us and guide us and direct us along his right paths. And so we come to God asking because he is a good, good father. Later on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 verses 9 through 11, Jesus is talking again about prayer and here's what he says about God the Father. He says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask 
Him. We have a good, good Father who loves to answer prayers and to give us good, good gifts. But I think the problem for most of us is that we just simply don't ask. We just simply don't ask. James 4.2 says this. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And so we are encouraged here by Jesus. We are invited here to ask for God to meet our daily needs. J.K. Jones, I mentioned him, mentioned him earlier. I was talking to him about prayer one day, and he described prayer as a dance. He said, prayer is a dance. First, God speaks, and we listen. And then we speak, and God listens. Prayer is a dance. God speaks typically through his word and through his holy spirit and we listen but then after we have listened we speak and he listens to us our father is a good good father who wants to come to him and ask him to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagined i was recently reminded of this picture of jfk And at the time of this picture, JFK is probably the most powerful person in the world. He's the president of the United States. And so for anybody to go and see JFK or to even be able to walk into the Oval Office, they would have to go through an extensive screening process to maybe, just maybe, be near the president. But what I love about this picture is that underneath his desk is his son playing Because a son and a daughter, children have special privileges when it comes to their father. Children have special privileges when it comes to their father. And as children of God, we have many special privileges. And one of the greatest privileges is the privilege of prayer. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us, we can now come to God with confidence and boldness, asking Him to do things that we would never think possible. And what I love about God is that um, he's not going to give us something that we don't need. In fact, Tim Keller, in his book on prayer, which I referenced earlier, he, he talks about the boldness that we can have to come to God and ask him for anything we want. And here's what he says. He says, We pray confidently because God won't give us what we want, only what is best for us. So pray with hope and confidence. We pray confidently because God won't give us what we want, only what is best for us. So we pray with hope and confidence, knowing that God's not going to answer the prayer exactly the way that we want him to because he's going to do everything the way that is best for us. We truly believe what Romans 8.28 says, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So... What should we do? Well, we should come to this amazing, abundant, generous God and pray simply and simply pray. And so what I want to do right now as a a congregation is for us to pray using the Lord's prayer as our guide. And so uh, we're going to have some music playing in the background and I'm going to invite you to pray.